Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day folks, and we're serving up some more extra helpings. We're looking at Series 6 today, Episodes 7 and 8. And so first up, of course, was that real-life story of Dog Tanya and the Three Musketeers that you had for us, Mikey. And we had lots of chat about this one, didn't we? Yeah, lots of references to that great old cartoon, Dog Tanya oh, and the three, the three Musketeers. Hounds. Oh, but- I love that! But the one you wanted to pick up on, Mikey, and the one that really tickled your palate was when you mentioned Fouquet, you know, that disgraced finance uh, courtier for Louis XIV, the man who flew just a little bit too close to the Sun King, didn't he, with all his extravagant living? Because one of those extravagances was the employment of a specific supervisor, wasn't it? His sort of chef de hotel, who you think, Mikey, was a kind of enchant regime forerunner to that most illustrious of careers, the celebrity party planner. Yes, but I'm talking about Francois Vatel. Now, actually, he is the most famous party planner in all of France. Mm. So 1671, 10 years after the whole thing with Foucault, He's now working for Prince Louis of Condé. Mm-hmm. See, here's the thing, Paulie. If you ask a lot of people, they'll, they'll tell you that Vettel's a chef, but he wasn't a chef. He was, as you said before, Europe's most famous party planner. So it was assumed that the prince's banquet in honour of, and here he comes again, Louis Fourteenth, to be held at the Chateau de Chantilly with over 2,000 people was going to be the party of the year. Mm. No expense was spared. In fact, they even spent 16,000 francs on a fireworks display. Wow. This banquet, it would cement Vettel's place in culinary and hospitality history. And sadly, mate, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> See, the events of the day are recorded in a letter written by the famous 17th century court gossip. Now, that's a great gig. Madame Marie de Savigny. Okay. Now, she starts off this letter saying, Vettel rose at four in the morning, determined to attend to every person in person. He found everybody still asleep. Now, mm. the guy's a perfectionist. Mm. He meets with one of the inferior purveyors who brought only two packets of sea fish. He asks, is that all? Mm. Yes, sir. See, here's the thing. Vettel actually sent out orders to half a dozen purveyors all, all around the area to get the best seafood. But Vettel is convinced that these two packages of fish, that's all he's going to have for the banquet. <laughs> you know, the whole party, in his mind, is mm. ruined. Well, just because he hasn't got enough fish. The guy was a perfectionist, mate. So here's the thing, and this is where it gets quite tragic. He goes up to his room, he takes his sword, he jams it in between two, dare I say, French doors, and runs onto the sword. What? Not just once, three times. And by the third time, he actually manages to kill himself. And just as he throws himself onto that sword, the rest of the fish arrive. So servants are sent scurrying through the whole castle, trying to find Vettel. Eventually, they burst open his doors. And I'm going to read again from the letter. He is found bathed in his own blood. Now, in France, Vettel is considered something of a martyr to perfectionism and a cautionary tale to all chefs, restaurant owners and waiters you know, regarding the pressures of a professional kitchen. Mm. In fact, mate, Vettel gets the highest honour in France in the year 2000. 
There's a movie called Vettel about right. his life, and he's played by none other than Gerard Depardieu. Wow. Mate, there's nothing more French than having Gerard Depardieu do your biopic. Welcome back, folks. Now, in our next episode, we talked about the Green Man, this fantastic mythical creature that appears in many cultures all over the world. But what really kicked off a few inquiries was your man, the great Islamic explorer and, and, and historian, virtually, Ibn Battuta. That's right, Mackies. And uh, first up, I've got to say thank you to all our listeners in Dubai, in the UAE, because they actually been sending through pics of them at the Ibn Battuta shopping mall, probably the largest themed shopping mall in the world, all kitted out with statues of the man himself and montages of his various travels. And you know, Mackie, I have to say, I know it's true because I actually paid a sneak visit there when I was passing through Dubai last time on my way home to England. All right, but the other questions we got and the key questions I want to talk about today is about that term we used in the app and a term we've referred to a couple of times before throughout the series, and that is the expression, the Maghreb. Yeah, right, yeah. Now, a few listeners have asked, you know, if we can put a bit more flesh on that particular bone. So like we said, Ibn Battuta, you know, being born in Tangiers, Morocco, he is very much a son of the Maghreb. And Maghreb is in Arabic and it means West and was generally used to describe the Western end of the Arab world, stretching over to the pillars of Hercules, you know, those icons of antiquity marking the end of the Mediterranean world and the beginning of the Atlantic Ocean. So essentially, the Maghreb is what now all the bits of northwest Africa above the Sahara and above the key chain of mountains that run alongside the Atlas. In many ways, I suppose, Mikey, you know, the Maghreb is opposite to the other term we use, the Sahel, which is used to describe that strip of lands running across the southern Sahara, uh, but finishing before you, know, you get to the more greener tropical areas down in Nigeria and Ghana and so on. And I can't believe I'm saying this, folks, but Paulie's done all that without even pulling out one map. Yeah, right, because at the moment it does sound quite simple, but of course it's not that easy, because just as it's impossible to say where the Sahara starts and stops, so with this term, the Maghreb, it's taken on a bit of a, a life of its own and means different things to different people. OK, so let's go back to the beginning. It starts off, as I said, it's an Arabic term, so really we need to start with them. Because obviously their main world was centred on Arabia. So traditionally the Maghreb, meaning West, that only referred to places like modern day Libya, Tunisia, Morocco on the African north coast. It didn't actually include Egypt at the time, Mikey, because, you know, with its massive standing in ancient times, Egypt was considered separate. But where it gets interesting and the reason why it started to cause some controversy is that the Maghreb as a term itself it more recently has been adopted by various movements, mostly political, to various ends, particularly by the people known as the Berbers. The Berbers? Yes, you see, the Berbers, these are the people referred to as the Moors back in medieval times. And they're the guys who over the centuries have controlled not just North Africa, but often parts of southern Europe too, you know, particularly the Iberian Peninsula, you know, Spain and Portugal. Which is why we get those great Islamic-looking castles and palaces in, in places like uh, Alhambra. And the great mosque at Cordoba, correct. But like I said, Mikey, these Berbers, they go back centuries. They're actually a very ancient people. Right back in the beginning, they ruled the kingdom of Numidia, which covered much of this North African region that we're talking about today, back at a time when Rome was just a twinkle in Romulus's eye. <laughs> yeah. And back at the same time as that other 
ancient superpower, the Phoenician colony of Carthage. Yeah, superpower until the Romans defeat Hannibal. Right, and that's the period when you see the first defeat of the Berbers, and when this whole coast, plus Egypt, plus Spain, is brought into the wider empire, that of the Romans. But of course, when Rome falls, or at least Western Rome, this area soon breaks away, the Europeans go home, and you have a series of independent states' territories once again ruled by this Berber majority. And this lasts well into the next few centuries, the 8th, 9th, right up to the 13th, with these Maghreb Berber tribes having now converted to Islam, forming quasi-independent states with local dynasties, all under the umbrella of the Islamic world, under the suzerainty of the Umayyad, Abbasid and Fatimid caliphates. And then, of course, in the 14th, 15th century, you've got the Ottoman Empire, which will remain in control for the next four or five hundred years. But the Berbers, they're still there, right? Very much so. In fact, by the 18th, 19th centuries, Mikey, this whole area is once again being called the Berber or Barbary Coast, particularly by the Brits and the British Navy. But I think the most telling point is that by this stage, the Berbers themselves, Mikey, they're actually using their own term, a completely different term, not the Barbary Coast or the Maghreb, but instead a word from their own language. Because the deal is, Mikey, the Berbers in their language, which of course is very separate from Arabic, they call this whole region Tamazga. And the problem with this word Tamazga is that in the Berber mind, that also incorporates much of southern Sahara, where the Berbers have also lived for many centuries. Because the reality is, Mikey, a bit like the Kurds, the Berbers for most of modern history have not had a state to call their own, and instead have had to look on powerless as the region has been broken up, largely by European powers, into the modern nation-states that we know now. So you're talking what, Algeria, Libya and Morocco? Right, but as I said, this Berber concept of Tamazga also includes large sections of northern Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso. And then over on the west coast, where the Sahara and the Atlas Mountains and the Atlantic Ocean all converge, it also covers lands what is now Mauritania and the so-called Western Sahara, both of which have been to a large extent, and unfortunately still are, considered failed states and pretty much in perpetual turmoil. Right, so this is where your Maghreb can start to cause a few problems. Right, because now the Maghreb has been associated with Tamazga as a term it's been identified with political insurrection. Not to mention, you know, the implosion that occurs in Libya with the fall of Gaddafi. You see, now and for the last few years, these terms, the Maghreb and Tamazga, they're being increasingly used as rallying cries for those seeking self-determination, self-rule which is why we're also seeing the rise in the use of the Tamazga, the Maghreb, Amazigh flag in demonstrations. <laughs> and why, in fact, so many commentators these days seem to be steering clear of using the term the Maghreb altogether. OK, so you've got some pretty serious modern political problems coming out of this historical context. But as you said before, there's another similar historical term, the Levant where the picture is almost completely opposite. Yes, that's right, Mikey. The situation with the phrase the Levant can be more different. You know, the, the Levant is a term originally coined by the French from their word lever and the Italians from their word levante, meaning you know, to rise, the rising as in the sun rising in the east. And it's been a very loose term used from the Crusades onwards by the French, the Venetians, most Europeans, in fact. And it describes that area, the lands of the east, where the sun rose up on the Mediterranean, what through the Bible was also known as the Holy Lands. And that's the thing, Mikey, like the Maghreb, the Levant as a term is still in circulation today. And yeah, you know, if you use it, most listeners would understand that you're talking about the area of the eastern Mediterranean coast in places like Lebanon, Syria, Israel and Palestine, you know, the Near East, if you like. 
But the Levant has never had any real political significance. And so for most people, it's just more of a geographic curiosity. But I did want to mention both these terms today, Mikey, because both the Levant and the Maghreb tie in with a number of tweets we've received calling us back to the Khazar episode. Mm -hmm. You see, when it comes to names referring to geographical regions as opposed to political nation states, I suppose the, the flames don't get found any fiercer than when it comes to the region we were talking about in that episode, what was known as Khazaria all those centuries ago, but which is now, of course, southern Russia and Ukraine. And I say Ukraine, Mikey, because that's the key to this story, as opposed to the Ukraine. Yeah, I didn't realise this, Paulie, but that the, is, it's heavily significant, isn't it? What exactly is at stake? Well, Mikey, in many ways, nothing less than the whole political sovereignty of the Ukraine itself. But in their coverage of the current crisis, some journalists and commentators still refer to events unfolding in the Ukraine, right? Right, and it might seem innocent, but it's not. You see, now, although Ukraine has its own language, Russian is still very much the lingua franca throughout this whole region. And Russian, like English, makes subtle distinctions between territories that are politically delineated and territories that are not. So you see, in Russian, people can refer to events happening na Ukraine or of Ukraine. The difference between na and of being the sort of equivalent difference between on and in. You know, for example, I know you put your ketchup na the shelf and you put it away of the cupboard. But much more importantly, and the key to this argument is that you use na for an unbounded territory, you know, like a hill on the hill, but you use v for a bounded territory that is defined politically or institutionally, such as a nation state. You know, for example, I live in Australia. Now, English makes a similar distinction, Mikey, but instead of changing the preposition, we use or don't use the definite article, the the. So, you know, me or you would say, yeah, last week I was in New South Wales, you know, with no the. Because it's a clearly defined state. Yeah, whereas I could also say, last week I was in the Red Centre or the Kimberley to show that I'm referring to a geographic region, just like we were talking before with the Levant. Okay, I'm sort of with you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a bit tricky, Maggie, but think of it another way. Imagine if I said, last week I was in Parramatta. Fine. Yeah, that's fine, no yeah. problem. But if I said, last week I was in the Parramatta, yeah, that would be confusing. You might think I was maybe in the Parramatta River, swimming or something. I'd pay to see that. <laughs> All right. Well, in Russian, the distinction is just as precise and politically for Ukraine, it's just as important. In fact, like I was saying before, it defines the whole issue of Ukraine's sovereignty. Because Ukraine, if you remember that episode, we said it translates as the borderland or the borderland. So if you use na Ukraine, like Russians have done over history, you're saying it's just a geographic term. It's the old borderlands that we're talking about in that episode, and it's all part of the old Russian Empire. Whereas if you use of Ukraine, you're confirming that it's a bounded nation state, like Germany, like Poland, like England, like Australia. And that's why in 1993, Ukraine's government, it asked Russia's government and the international community as a whole to abandon that old Soviet-era Russian Empire practice of referring to this state as na Ukraine and only to use of Ukraine. But don't tell me, Paulie, old hamster-faced Putin and everyone in the Russian media, they're still using na Ukraine. 
Right, and it's a deliberate tactic to keep bringing the whole sovereignty of Ukraine into question. And this, of course, trying to legitimise what they're doing, what they're saying is just Mother Russia taking back what was hers in the first place. Right, so Putin is saying, nah, Ukraine, the Ukraine, because that way he thinks he can keep this whole territory remaining defined only in terms of its relationship with the mothership, Russia's borderlands. As opposed to being a separate entity defined by and within itself, correct? So, we in the international community should only really use of Ukraine. Right, but this is the bit I love. In a subtle twist, when it comes to Putin's speeches... The English language translations that are being issued to the Western press from his, from Russia's media, these have him describing the events of Ukraine with no the, even though he's actually saying, nah, Ukraine, the Ukraine throughout. What, so even Putin's translators disagree with him? (laughs) Well, perhaps, or perhaps they're doing it deliberately to try and deflect attention away from the problem. But make no mistake, Mikey, Putin is arguing that Ukraine's sovereignty is a historical fiction every time he deliberately refers to events happening nah, not of. So it's important we keep countering him by not saying the. Precisely. All right, and to round us out today, we'll stick with that episode when we were talking about the expansion of Russia under Peter the Great and Catherine the Great. And of course, the other key figure in the whole story, Grigory Potemkin, who, as I said, was not such a bad bloke because he's been made out to be. Yeah, wait till I'm done with this story. <laughs> okay. Okay, we've got a few inquiries about, about Grigory Potemkin. And is he the person that gives us the phrase, a Potemkin village? Mm. Now, a Potemkin village, it's most often used these days to to deride a literal or figurative facade, Mm. something constructed to conceal a deep-seated problem, either in a company, a country, an economy, or even at its most literal, a structure. Mm. Now, the origin of this story usually follows the same pattern. Grigory Potemkin was desperate to impress his boss, the Russian Empress Catherine, mm. with his military incursion to oust the Ottomans from the Crimea in 1787. And I'm right when I say the Crimea, am I? Yes, the Crimea Peninsula. To this end, the story goes, he would have a fake village assembled. Sort of like what we'd recognise these days as, say, a movie set for a Western. Mm. Nothing more than facades and some signage. Mm. Just enough to impress Catherine as she passed through in a carriage, but portable enough to be torn down and hurriedly reassembled before she arrived at the next destination. Further down the line, exactly, yes. Exactly, mate, yeah. As such, it's gone down in legend as a great historical and military folly, hmm. something that shows a triumph of wishful thinking over actual achievement. Hmm. But there are two problems with this story, mate. Firstly, it contains less than a scintilla of factual truth. Right. But, and this is my favourite bit, it has taken attention away from something even more ridiculous perpetrated by Potemkin and his desperate desires to please Catherine. Okay. Okay, but first off, we've got to answer this question. Why were so many people willing to believe in the stories of Potemkin and his prefabricated village? Well, like you were saying in the episode, a lot of it's because of Catherine's successor, right? Exactly, her son Paul. You have to remember, Paul was pretty ticked off with Catherine. Well, she was behind the coup that killed his dad. Yeah. Which is why, like we said in the episode... Paul was so keen to discredit his mum with the whole death by equine misadventure rumours. But what happens with the Potemkin village thing? It's first written down actually decades later by a bunch of diplomats and historians who were not only hostile to Russia, but to the memory of Catherine in particular. Right, yes, I read about this because these were Baltic states, Northern European commentators, right, who felt that their nations had been usurped and downtrodden by the expansionist policies of Catherine and her Russian court. 
and wanted a bit of revenge served cold. That's right, mate. These mostly Finnish and Saxony writers used these reports of the Potemkin villages as just another piece of propaganda for, for years to come as a way of deriding the concept of Russian might. And as such, it soon took hold within virtually all of Europe. More immediately, however, for the Crimea was the work of, and here's my howl for the day, the British envoy to Turkey, Sir Robert Ainsley. Okay. Even as the gun smoke was settling in the Crimea, he's already back in Turkey spreading the rumours about these Potemkin villages. Mm. Now, he does this to embolden the Ottomans. He also promises, and here we go, that if they try and re-establish a presence in the Crimea, that they would receive the backing of Great Britain and her army and navy. Mm. And they don't turn up. In fact, there's 14 dreadful more years of fighting. The Ottomans finally signed the Treaty of Jassy in 1791, yes. which does secede the Crimea to Russia. Mm. Strangely enough, Potemkin is still alive. In fact, he dies while these negotiations are being finalised. And mm -hmm. good old Sir Robert Ainsley... He disappears back to England, never to be heard of again. <laughs> but all those geopolitics aside, we do have to ask ourselves, what was the basis of the legends of Potemkin's demountable fake villages? Mm. Well, here's the thing, mate. There's a bit of truth and there's a bit more of just absolute bizarre wackiness that history has overlooked. Okay. Look, just as later writers would use half-truths and flat-out lies to create anti-Catherine propaganda, mm. Potemkin was often very, very guilty of spreading just plain nonsense for his own propaganda purposes. Mm. So let's start with the accounts of two men who were actually accompanying Catherine and Potemkin as they did their little victory lap around the Crimea. Well, first off, we have the recollections of the French diplomat and historian, a guy called Louis-Philippe, the Comte de Segur. Mm. Now, he wrote about Potemkin's tendency to, well, over-decorate right. those existing villages that Catherine would pass through. And he writes... Towns, villages, estates, and sometimes simple huts were so decorated with flowers, painted backdrops, and triumphal gates that they appeared as some miraculous city, castles created magically with incredible gardens. Or we also had this other observation from a guy who was there, mm. the Italian diplomat Guglielmo Constantino Ludov. Mm. Now, he writes, You may think Kirshon is a desert. Think again. Eight years ago, there was almost nothing there. Potemkin has thrown 8 million rubles at the construction of a city. So they're both saying that Potemkin did do something quite impressive, but just not quite as impressive as perhaps he wants history to remember him for. Mate, even allowing for a bit of 18th century exaggeration, this showed the enormous amount of funds that Potemkin was willing to plough into, not just staking a claim to the Crimea, but also just what lengths he was willing to go to to impress his, well, ex-lover and Empress Catherine. Mm. In fact, mate, he was really pulling out all the stops to impress her. And this is where things get really ludicrous. Mm -hmm. Okay, you have to remember, her retinue for the tour was some 14 carriages, 124 sleighs and wagons, all up with servants, courtiers and foreign diplomats. It was an entourage of some 3,000 people that had to be fed, housed and transported. Doing the tour down to the Crimea. Yes, mate, and there was one special guest on board, the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II tagged along. Right. But he was travelling under the pseudonym of, of wait for it, Count Falkenstein. Okay. That's from him we do get some other descriptions of Potemkin's extravagance. Mm. He talks about a firework show put on by Potemkin to impress Catherine, at which point Catherine's monogram was displayed by some 55,000 torches. Wow. But this, mate, this isn't the strangest tale from Catherine's 12 days of traipsing around the Crimea. 
Okay. Remember how I said that you know, Potemkin would gild the lily about his efforts in the Crimea? Well, in his correspondence with Catherine, this is during the campaign, mm. he told stories of how willing Greeks who had fled the Ottomans in Turkey to live in the Crimea had fought with great distinction against the Turks and not just the Greek men. He explained to his empress how the Greek women had embraced their Amazon heritage <laughs> and thrown themselves headlong into the battle. Now, when Catherine questioned the validity of these events, Potemkin hurriedly established the Amazon Company. The Amazon Company? I presume we're talking the company of soldiers rather than Jeff Bezos. Mate, not just any sort of soldiers. There were 100 women of Greek descent. They were conscripted, given rudimentary training in riding, fencing and shooting. They even had a commander, the 19-year-old Elena Sarandova. Ironically enough, this young Greek woman became the first female officer in the history of the Russian army. And did his plan work? Oh, mate, it worked. By the 24th of May, 1787, Potemkin had his Amazon company drilled and uniformed. And when I say uniformed, I'm talking a Vegas showroom (laughs) costume designer's unlimited fantasy of a uniform. (laughs) This regiment of Amazons were decked out to the nines. There were red velvet skirts and snazzy green jackets, both of which were festooned with lots of gold. (laughs) On their heads, they sported white turbans with sequins and ostrich feathers. Catherine was so impressed by the sight of these 100 women riding on their brand new mares right up to greet her. This is on the outskirts of a village in Kadiki, that they accompanied her throughout the rest of her journey, only to be immediately and unceremoniously disbanded once she'd gone back to Russia. <laughs> so in the course of history, Potemkin's non-existent villages, well, they've become increasingly popular as a metaphor for folly, whereas the greater folly was creating a fictitious all-Greek and all-female <laughs> cavalry brigade, and that's been mostly forgotten. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there. Lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right, which brings us to next week. And next week, folks, Paul is off to the UK, which gives us a chance to go into our back catalogue and have a look at some classic eps before we come back for season seven. (laughs) 